0: Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remained steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. That is the reading of the word for us today. Let's pray. Father, We are very grateful for your word. God, we're grateful for your wisdom, your infinite wisdom. God, how you know us so well. God, how you teach us on how we ought to live, especially today on how we ought ought to act in times of great suffering and in times of oppression. So we ask, Father, that you would please, first and foremost, be glorified as we sit and receive your word this morning. We ask, God, that the beginning of this worship service cultivated our hearts, tilled them up, got them ready to receive the planted word. And we ask, God, that you would please, by your Holy Spirit, minister to us. Encourage us, Lord but correct us if need be. I pray, God, that as we read your word together and as we study your word together, that you, Lord, would lead us to worship you. God, that we would worship your son Jesus this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. Uh, If you're with us this morning for the first time, welcome to Apostles Church. Very thankful to have you here. Um, We are currently going through the book of James. And it's been a really good book, it's been a huge blessing and encouragement to all of us and we're, we're coming to the end of this series. This is the second to last sermon. So I'm not closing it down, but I'm, I'm almost there. In the first book of the Bible, there is a story that begins to answer the question of how everything bad in the world came to be. We know it as the fall. It is the moment in human history where Adam and Eve, the first man and the first woman created by God, disobey God and decide to determine for themselves what is good and what is evil. And through this one's transgression, excuse me, sin entered the world and by virtue, all sorts of injustice followed. You only have to read the first few pages of the Bible to witness the first accounts of deceit, suffering, and oppression between mankind because as soon as mankind begins to decide good and evil for themselves, they start doing it in a really crooked and distorted way. Instead of loving the creator, we started loving the created, Paul says in Romans 1.25. Instead of loving and serving one, one another, we begin to love and serve ourselves, oftentimes at the expense of others, Paul tells us in 2 Timothy. Thus, injustice, oppression, Suffering it spread like wildfire. If you read through the Bible, you will quickly see how good of a job the Old Testament authors do at recording how terribly awful mankind can actually be towards each other and towards God. But we don't have to read the Bible only to see how horrible mankind can be. We can quickly go ahead and slide over, or swipe over to our newsfeed on our iPhones, and we're instantly seeing tons of stories, countless stories about murder, rape, racism, fraud, and all their forms of oppression and suffering that happen daily. I'm a father of two little girls, so when I see and read stories about sex trafficking victims, child abuse, child pornography, and any other grievous injustice, I can't help but get a little angry. I can't help but be upset. When I do hospital visits and see the suffering and the great distress caused by birth defects, genetic disease, illness, drunk driving, depression, you name it, I can't help but get frustrated. I can't help at times to be filled with sorrow over these things. I can't help ask myself sometimes why them and not me? When we all really think on the suffering and the injustice in the world caused by sin, I think the words of the psalmist in Psalm 94 become our own prayer whether we know it or not. How long shall the wicked exult? They pour out their arrogant words. All the evildoers boast. They crush your people, O Lord, and afflict your heritage. They kill the widow and the sojourner and murder the fatherless. O Lord, God of vengeance, O God of vengeance, shine forth. Rise up, O judge of the earth. Repay to the proud what they deserve. God, please fix this. Judge those who make it their business to hurt, to destroy, to oppress, and to murder the innocent. How long, O Lord? I know these words and feelings on this topic are not unique to me. I think many, if not all of us here this morning, share the same emotion and heart towards these issues. I know that there are many in this room who have suffered themselves a great deal due to injustice or oppression I know every single one of us has and will experience inevitable suffering that comes with the existing in a world marred by sin. At some level, every Christian is asking the same question and that question is, the Psalmist's question, how long, O Lord? Paul states in Romans eight twenty-two and 23 that creation longs for renewal. We long for it. That creation longs for justice. We wanna see it and experience it. But it is not yet time. God knows this. James, the author of this letter that we're reading, knows this. So there is instruction on what we can do now as we both witness and experience suffering and oppression today. And I'm thankful for that. Now if you are with us last week, you'll remember the topic of oppression and suffering came up already. At the beginning of this chapter, James strongly warns the rich and the unjust of the miseries that are coming upon them due to their wicked ways. These godless individuals spoken of here were accumulating wealth by oppressing the poor. They did this through fraud, holding back the wages of the poor labor who tended their fields. We read about that in James chapter five, verse four. And then when challenged by these poor workers, these godless individuals would drag them into court, they would condemn them, and even go as far as to unjustly have them sentenced to death. Read about this in James chapter 2, verses six through seven and James chapter 5, verse six. As James finishes up his teaching on what is to come of those who are oppressing and hurting the poor, his pastoral heart anticipates the need to encourage, the need to give hope to those who are experiencing this oppression and experiencing terrible suffering in real time. So James shifts from addressing the oppressors to addressing the oppressed. And it begins with a simple exhortation. In James 5, 7 he says, be patient. Be patient. Why? Because the coming of the Lord is at hand. Now what does it mean to be patient? I think as a child I thought patience was just waiting but any quick trip to the DMV, you'll realize that patience and waiting don't really go hand in hand, right? You don't need to sit long in that line to realize that people are frustrated and not patient. There's a thing called impatiently waiting. I think we do that quite often. Merriam-Webster has a good simple definition of what it means to be patient. They define it as this, bearing pains or trials calmly or without complaint. In other words, Being patient is having the capacity to accept or tolerate delay, trouble, or suffering without getting angry, upset, or annoyed. Hmm, how many of us today can actually say that we're patient people? If you're asked that question, it might not do you any good. So later on, ask your spouse, ask your closest friends, Ask somebody if you're known as a patient person. You'll probably get a more accurate answer. I'm gonna read a list of things that might help you identify if you're possibly an impatient person, okay? So listen closely. You know you are impatient if you never let the microwave finish counting down. You know you're impatient if you arrive everywhere early and are kind of annoyed by people who merely arrive on time. You know you're impatient if you know with bone-chilling certainty that the closed-door button on the elevator is a total lie. You know you're impatient if the person in front of you at a traffic light has about .5 seconds to move when the light turns green before you lay on the horn. (laughs) You know you're impatient if your family is always walking behind you. You know you're impatient if if you're utterly baffled by people who do not feel the need to hurry. You know you're impatient when you're texting someone in the three line, the three little dots appear more than once and you desperately want to text question mark, question mark, question mark. You know you're impatient if you're on hold for more than a minute and you hang up, they'll just have to call you back. And lastly, you know you're an impatient person when you are constantly looking to shoot the gap while walking behind people on the sidewalk who are not walking at your desired pace. That one hits home for me some reason. I think it's safe to say that in general, we all could use a little more patience. And James tells these discouraged suffering Christians to be patient. But why is this his counsel? Be patient for what? James 5, 7 tells us this. Be patient therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. Now when we experience great suffering or injustice, There are two basic responses that we humans default to. We will either try to take matters into our own hands, try and get back to those who are wronging us, seek vengeance, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, pick up the sword, so to speak, and demand justice, pick ourselves up by our own bootstraps. That's one response to suffering or oppression. Or the other response is we can simply give up. The wicked will always win. Nothing will ever change. God will never do a thing to help us and we can slip into despair and hopelessness. James is arguing that there is another way and that way is to be patient. Stand firm. Wait for the Lord to make right all the wrong. Trust in God, remain steadfast. Lean into the sure hope that God will most certainly come and when he comes, he will most certainly judge the wrongdoer, he will most certainly right all the wrongs. Psalm 37, verses seven through nine tell us, be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself, it tends only to evil. For the evil doers shall be cut off but those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. So be patient, don't give up, do not take matters into your own hands, be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Now of course one of the question is what does this patience look like? Is James advocating that all Christians should take a passive role in the world? Should we all do nothing about injustice when we witness it or experience it in the world? James outlines two things to help teach us about this posture of patience in the life of the Christian who is suffering both injustice at the hands of man as well as just suffering in general. He asks us to consider two things. Number one, the farmer. And number two, the prophets and Job. Number one, the farmer, verse seven, and number two, the prophets and Job in verses 10 through 11. So let's take this in turn. Number one, let's consider the farmer. James five, seven through eight. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it, until it receives the early and late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Now James draws this illustration from a familiar way of life to help articulate what it means to be patient in a, in a time of suffering, in a time of injustice. He answers the two questions here, why we must be patient, and he also answers the question, what this patience looks like? Now this illustration is somewhat lost on us here in North America, with little to no knowledge on how farming is, I think the most concerned about farming we are is whether our food is organic or not. But this illustration is very helpful. And I want to share a few things that will help us understand what James is saying when he uses a farmer as an illustration. Now, farmers in general have plenty of work to do. Some of you guys may know this. Some of you may not. They have plenty things to do to keep themselves busy to prepare for a harvest. They have to cultivate the ground. They have to clear the ground, they have to prepare the ground, they have to keep out the vermin, they have to do all these things to prepare the ground. The one thing, though, they couldn't do and they had no control over is the rain, the source of water for their crops. They had no irrigation sprinklers, they had no water trucks, so these farmers heavily depended on the faithfulness of the rain. Without the rain, there would be no harvest. All they could do was wait. Now, in this part of the world, James brings up the early and the, late, and the late rains in this passage. The early rains came between October and November and the late rains came between March and April. Now we understand outside of this illustration that rain is never a certainty. There are years of drought, famine, odd weather at times, all of which are unpredictable. But in general, there are seasonal patterns that all farmers trust in or rely on. In this illustration, the mentioning of the rain coming two times a year is meant to indicate the certainty and the faithfulness of the rains coming. The certainty and the faithfulness that the rains will come. And here's the point that James is making. Just like the farmer can't force the rain to fall to the ground, we can't force Jesus' righteous return and rain. There is no amount of impatient action that will push Jesus to come early. We have no control over when God will call all injustice and all wickedness into account. All we can do is patiently wait. But the motivation that we have here is that he will come. As certain as the rains will come in this illustration, these farmers relied on, Jesus will certainly come. He will faithfully return. James now gets to point two. What does it look like to patiently wait? Do we just stand around and stare up at the heavens, waiting to see Jesus in the clouds? Do we passively go about our lives inactive? Do we just hunker down in our homes for just self-preservation? The farmer illustration proves to be once again helpful when thinking about what it means to be patient. Farmers, again, don't simply plant a seed, go sit on the porch, and go wait for the rain to fall. Farmers work. They work extremely hard. Like I mentioned before, they tend to the crops. They cultivate and care for the grounds. They work hard to be ready for the rains. And in like fashion, James tells us to keep persevering, to keep working, even in times of great suffering, and great trial. James 5, eight through nine again. He says, establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. In other words, James is saying stand firm. Don't just stand there, but strengthen your resolve to do what God has called you to do. There's a beautiful list in Romans chapter 12 that kind of displays the marks of a Christian that I think are very helpful to understand and remind us what we ought to do as Christians. Let me read it for you now. Romans 12, nine. As a Christian, let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in the spirit. Serve the Lord. Patience in suffering does not equal inactivity in our Christian responsibilities. Patience in suffering does not equal inactivity in our Christian responsibilities as much as we like to shut down when things get hard. Paul is encouraging us and James is encouraging us to keep working at it, to stand firm. Paul says to the Galatian church in Galatians nine. Do not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. Brothers and sisters, trials can be extremely hard in this life, extremely challenging, at times seemingly unbearable, but God in his infinite wisdom and grace encourages us, encourages you and me today to be patient in our suffering, to know that our Lord will return to not forsake our calling to love God and to love our neighbor even when life is at its hardest. We must establish our hearts and stand firm. Now in regards to our Christian responsibility, James now highlights one specific area that his original audience was struggling with. We see that in in chapter five, verse nine. He says, do not grumble against one another. So the particular thing he's talking about is grumbling. Grumbling oftentimes accompanies suffering, does it not? I think it's important to distinguish complaining from grumbling. Because there's a difference, a slight difference, but there is one. Complaining is more of a verbal expression of your dissatisfaction in something. We can do that truthfully, and we can do that righteously. And we should do it kindly. We can file a complaint towards a business for bad service provided, that's not a sin. You can do that. We can yelp and not transgress, although many of us do when we yelp. My dad, personally, he battled colon cancer for a few years, and in my prayers, I absolutely made my complaint known to God that I hate cancer. The psalmist had no problem bringing his complaints before God in Psalm 142, verses one through two. With my voice I cry out to the Lord. With my voice I plead for mercy to the Lord. I pour out my complaint before him. I tell my trouble before him. To complain does not always equal sinning. Grumbling, on the other hand, is more times than not an inward, inarticulate complaining with a sinful attitude. That's why Paul tells us in the book of Philippians, do all things without grumbling. This is chapter two, verses 14 and 15. Do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. James is telling us do not grumble about each other. Don't, do not grumble against each other. Don't grumble at all. Now, to kind of like think through what it means to grumble in our suffering, I have a couple examples. But I'm sure we can all come up with our own examples of what it looks like to grumble when we're suffering or what it looks like to grumble at any time of our life. But I think what it can look like is we can mask our grumbling when we're venting our dissatisfaction about our circumstances to others. A grumble can simply be a venting, a venting of our dissatisfaction of our suffering and our circumstances to others. What I mean by that is It's one thing to ask for prayer. It's one thing to share so that our brothers and sisters can bear our burdens with us. But it's a whole other thing to express our discontentment in a sinful manner about where God has us in life. Why God has us going through what we're going through. Another way to grumble in suffering is to think ill of someone that might not fully understand how to encourage you when you're suffering. When someone's just trying to serve you and minister to you and they just miss the mark, whether their words aren't as kind as they may think or it was just an unfit word, we can inarticulate a grumbling and complaint towards our brother and sister, assuming the worst. The other way we can do it is we can assume the worst about others who are suffering. We can grumble to ourselves about an, an individual who's suffering, whether we're comparing and contrasting our own suffering with them whether we're comparing and contrasting how we think they should act or how, we think they're go- how they think they're responding to this. There's are many examples of how we can grumble in a simple way, which is complain about others or to others in our suffering. These are just a few examples. But grumbling is not restricted to our suffering. I think all of us can testify to that. We simply grumble and complain about a lot of things, right? our marriages, our careers, our looks, our lot in life. I mean, there are so many things we can grumble about. There's no end to them. And what grumbling does, it ultimately shows your discontentedness with God. When the people of Israel wandered in the desert, they nonstop grumbled in the book of Exodus and Deuteronomy. It's recorded they grumbled against Aaron and Moses. They specifically by name grumbled against Aaron and Moses, but God tells them in Exodus 16.8 that their grumbling is not against Aaron and Moses, it's against him. Grumbling against anyone, anyone, ultimately is an expression of your discontent with God and his will. That's powerful that should make us rethink grumbling, right? Church, let us not be known for grumbling, but rather for our patient hearts, our trust in the Lord, and our gospel hope, amen? The second consideration here, James points out, is the prophets and Job. The prophets and Job. Now that he has instructed the church on how to be patient, he now encourages them by giving them a working example or working examples of what it means to endure in patience. James chapter 5, verses 10 through 11. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate, how the Lord is merciful. The example of the prophets in Job is one that should both encourage us today and also teach us a few lessons on Christian suffering. It encourages and teaches us a few things by doing two things. It shows us that those who are known to be the closest and the most intimate with God, the prophets, are not exempt from suffering. It also shows us that those who endure to the end are considered blessed, which is a beautiful gospel hope. The godly are not exempt from suffering. Let's take this in turn. The godly are not exempt from suffering. Now, it was not uncommon to associate suffering with personal sin. And there can be a direct connection between our sinning and our suffering at times. We'll learn more about that next Sunday. But many people believed and still believe that if you're experiencing great suffering now, it is because you have some deep, unconfessed sin in your life. And if you don't, then you won't experience suffering. You won't experience hardship. You won't experience trials. Rather, you'll experience great prosperity, wealth, and health. You'll just have blue skies ahead of you and a huge bank account. This is false teaching. Completely false. James uses the prophets as an example to show that godliness and suffering are almost synonymous. Godliness and suffering are almost synonymous. Jesus said in Matthew 5, verses 11 through 12, "'Blessed are you when others revile you "'and persecute you, and utter all kinds of evil "'against you falsely on my account. "'Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Everyone will experience some form of suffering in this life, but especially the Christian. When James' readers read this part of this letter, no doubt these Christians were thinking of men like Moses, Jeremiah, Isaiah, John the Baptist, who was beheaded for his faith in Christ. And upon hearing this, they were reassured that their suffering was not just results of sin, but rather their suffering was an indicator of their salvation, that their suffering was an indicator of their salvation and not an indicator of their condemnation. Now Job, if you know the story of Job, then you know that he was accused of this very thing. Job was a man who was known by God as a righteous man. So so much so that God allows Satan to afflict him by taking away everything he had in order to display God's devotion, excuse me, Job's devotion to God. Satan takes away his children, his wealth, his employees, his animals, his estates, his health, everything, Satan afflicts him on all fronts except for his wife. And if you know about Job's wife, then you'd probably think that as more of a loss than a win. Yeah, but but Job experienced terrible suffering, absolutely terrible, horrendous suffering. And Job's friends tell him that he needs to confess his sin because that has to be the reason why God is doing this or why God is allowing this. And Job fights that. Job fights this because it's not true. So James uses this story of Job to confirm that suffering happens to all of God's chosen people And for some of us who are tempted to believe that our suffering is unique to us, I'm here to encourage you that it's not. Suffering is unique to Christians. Suffering is unique to godliness. Yes, every single person suffers. Every single person in the world will suffer, has suffered to some degree. But for us Christians, we have to understand that suffering comes with the territory and for maybe for some of you today, this is a great encouragement. Lastly, James shows us through these examples the blessing that awaits those who patiently endure. James five eleven. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. At the end of Job's story, we read that God restores Job's fortune. He not only brings Job back to where he was before everything was taken away from him. Rather, God doubles the wealth and the prosperity that Job previously had. And the point here that James is making is that God richly blessed Job upon enduring through tremendous suffering. Now, it's important that we understand that although Job was rewarded with material blessing, this is not at all promising material wealth for all who endure suffering as Christians. A quick review of the prophets that I just mentioned would support that argument pretty easily. But here's the point that he's making. That God blesses those who endure. Blessed is the one who endures. And although earthly riches are promised to no Christian, life abundant and eternal glory is promised to all who put their faith in Jesus Christ. And that is why the Christian is considered blessed. God is compassionate. God is merciful to his people, is he not? Our text this morning has been instruction on how we ought to be patient in suffering. How in suffering and great trial we ought to stand firm and to remain active lovers of God and lovers of our brothers and sisters, our neighbor. Our text this morning gives us the motivation to endure. Our Lord's coming is certain, and that is a wonderful and beautiful truth and motivation to endure. Our Lord's coming is certain. Justice will be established. Our text this morning shows us that suffering is not uncommon. It's common to the follower of Christ. It's expected and welcomed, recognizing, looking earlier back at James's letter that suffering in trials makes us more like Christ. and That upon enduring we'll be rewarded with the crown of life that is graciously bestowed to us in Christ. All great encouragements for us this morning and perhaps for you who are suffering this morning. But this text is mostly instruction And because of that, it's only fitting that we close considering the suffering that Christ patiently endured for us. So I'm gonna ask you to just sit and listen as I read Isaiah 53, verses three through 12 to close our service. This is a passage speaking of our Lord Jesus Christ. Explaining, articulating the suffering that he went through for our sake so that we might have his righteousness. And so please, just listen, consider, and meditate on this text now. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned everyone to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for this, as for his generation, he bore the sin of many, and makes intercession for the transgressors. Father, we're thankful that you instruct us, and you teach us on what we ought to do when we experience suffering. God, that we ought to be patient that we have to be patient for your coming, knowing all the well that when Jesus comes, all the rights will be made wrong. Knowing well that when Jesus comes, God, we will enter into your glory, that justice will be established, that mercy and peace will reign. God, we know that you hear our cries, We know, God, that you care, that you care about the things that we are going through, our sufferings. God, we know we ought to stand firm. So we ask, God, by the power of your Holy Spirit that we would be a people that does not grumble, that we would be active in our Christian responsibilities to love and serve you, first and foremost, and by doing so, loving and serving our neighbor, God, we thank you. Give us examples that help clear up our theology, that reassure us, God, how much you love us, and that what we experience at times when we suffer persecution or oppression or any other sort of injustice, God, we know you care. We know it's not a marker of your judgment on us, God, which. It can be at times, God, but as as a believer in Jesus, sealed by the Holy Spirit, God, we know that you are refining us. We know that it comes with the territory. And God, most of all, we thank you for the motivation to endure by looking at our Lord Jesus, by seeing the perfect example. God, that he did no grumbling as he was led to the slaughter. God, as he patiently endured the suffering that was brought about on him, on our behalf, that he died on the cross for our sins, and from his death and resurrection, God, we have been given new life. We have been forgiven of our sins. There is no condemnation in Christ. God, we are your people, and there's nothing that will take us out of your hand as we put our faith in Jesus. So thank you, God, for that. We love you, and it's in the name of Jesus we pray, amen.